All right, so last week as we began our doctrine series, we did the doctrine of the Bible, and I said that we would try and get these uh, notes um, up onto the website, um, but uh, the guy who does that, Daniel Weeks, was at the middle school camp, he was at the high school camp, now he's on his on the plane on the way to Alaska. So uh, it's coming, um, but uh, just know that it didn't happen as quickly as I wanted to. I didn't have the heart to ask him to do one more thing, honestly. He would have done it. He is a servant to the core, but um, I just was like, this guy's gone through enough in the last couple of weeks and then planning to go. So I'm um, sorry for that. It, they're coming, though. Um, but the title, The Doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity. So as we look at this, uh, you'd have to agree that in the 21st century, there's been an explosion of information in an unprecedented way. But despite that massive download of information that has come in this generation of ours, there's one piece of information that is more important than them all, and that is the knowledge of God. It should be the desire of every man, woman, and child to know God. Let me say this right at the beginning in case I forget. There's a book. It's free. If you go and you download it, it should be free. Don't pay for it unless you just want a hard copy. But it's called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And um, you can just type probably that title, PDF, free, and find it. But this should be the desire of every believer, every man, woman, and child on this planet is to know the God who created them. And Scripture teaches that God is holy and dwells in unapproachable light. Well, that kind of creates a little bit of a problem. We want to know him, and yet he dwells in unapproachable light. How are we going to possibly you know, bridge that chasm? And the Apostle Paul answers that in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, uh, as he prayed for the Ephesians, that we would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he's praying for this, and he says, Now unto him who is exceedingly... Um, who answers exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And it's funny how we take that verse and we apply it to any old thing we want to. But the exceedingly abundantly is answering the dilemma of something that passes knowledge. And we should feel that crisis as we read it. Wait a minute. Knowledge of God, it passes my understanding. What's going to happen? Oh, but now to him who's able to do you know, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So God is taking care of that. Um, even in Corinthians, it talks about how we don't know what this sister over here or that brother over there or the person you live with, you don't even know what's going through your own mind at times, do you? Like, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know. Give me a minute. Give me a week, you know. Give me 10 more years. I've almost got this thing figured out. And there, we, we lack this understanding. But it goes on to say, but God has placed his spirit within us that we can know the mind of the Lord. Think about that. You don't have, you know, that brother or that sister or me. You don't want me in your mind, believe me, right? You don't have that. You're not asking for that. We make assumptions about what they're thinking or feeling. But with God, he's placed his spirit within us that we might know him. So that chasm has been bridged. Tonight we're going to explore some arguments, at least the, the plan is, to explore arguments for the existence of God. 
We'll consider the fatherhood of God, the attributes of God. If we have time, the names of God. And then we'll talk about the Trinity. So let's begin first discussing the existence of God. Um, Across cultural boundaries, uh, across education, geographical boundaries, mankind has always had a belief that there is a God. That's not to say everybody was, but cultures, for the most part, have a distinct and real belief in a God, whoever he might be. Some of these have created some really crazy ideas, but nonetheless, there's a belief in the existence of God. And the Bible assumes the belief in God as it writes, in the beginning, God. I mean, that's the that's a first line of Scripture. It's not trying to prove anything. It's just saying there is God and this is what he has done. And he goes on to describe his creative acts. And so the Bible assumes his existence. The Bible is not written to be an, all, an apologetic to the unbeliever who does not believe there is a God. I think the Bible will answer many of those questions, but that's not why it was written. It was written to those that believe, to those that want to know the Lord. It should be noted that God requires faith in him. And any attempt to do an apologetic that would remove the element of faith in God is doing a disservice to how God has said you can know me. So while we talk about arguments for God and we're going to talk about the existence of God, it should be known that we have to have faith still. One author writes, the value of these proofs, these proofs that we're going to look at tonight, says, then lies chiefly in overcoming some of the intellectual objections of unbelievers. They cannot bring unbelievers to saving faith, for that comes through belief in the testimony of Scripture. But they can help overcome objections from unbelievers, and for believers, they can provide further intellectual evidence for something they've already been persuaded of, from their own inner sense of God, and from the testimony of Scripture. So in these arguments, it's not the beginning and the end of all. And I think you can even, you know, each of us, as we we hear this, we'll see, you know, how this helps us, how we think about it. But here are the, the four arguments for the existence of God. The first one is the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument for God. And this is a logical reasoning that's based on the premise that something can't come from nothing. Uh, cosmo or cosmos is, is a Greek word uh, for world. So there's a world that exists. And so because it exists, it had to come from something. And of course, we know the, there are plenty of arguments against the idea that there's a God who created something, that some want to say that it just happened um, by uh, you know, a set of fortuitous accidental events and uh, evolution began. But even at that, where did the information come from for that accident to happen? When you get back there, you have to have something. And so because we have something, we reason it had to come from somewhere. It can't come from nothing. Um, And and we read in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or are held together. So this is the testimony of Scripture. And I'm sorry, the the projector is, oh, it's working here. Okay, you got it there. I don't have it there. That's perfect because I have them right here. I didn't think you were able to have them up. 
the notes. But something with all the storms that we had, it knocked out a, a bunch of our equipment. And I don't know if we got it all. Well, we don't have that one working. I know the radio was off too, so I don't know if we got that back on. But um, glad we were able to have lights. But um, sorry, sorry for that little... Uh, I was going to apologize, but I don't need to apologize. It's up there for you. So that's a cosmological argument. If there's something, it didn't come from nothing. There's a cosmos, cosmological. The teleological argument uh, is the second argument, and this also an argument for the existence of God. Telos is the Greek word which means, uh, which refers to means, end, goal, or purpose. So this takes kind of the idea that there's something, and it takes it to the next level of purpose. Okay, so there is something. But now it's, it's, it's meaningful, it's purposeful. And this idea presented in this argument is that the universe has order and design, and thus an intelligent designer was at work when this cosmos was made. And that is Creator God. Psalm 104 verse 15 speaks of the purpose and, and the, the, the goal that God had. We read of creation that He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. So it isn't just a cosmos. It isn't just a creation. It's a creation that has order and design and purpose in it. The ontological argument is the third argument. And um, this again comes from the Greek language ontos which is, um, for those of you that know a little bit of Greek, this will be meaningful. It's a participle, but it's from the verb aimi. Um, and when Jesus says, I am, he says, ego aimi. So it's, a, it's the idea of existence or being. Um, and so the ontological argument is that the, it's the central idea is that mankind has an awareness of God, that there is a, an existence and so um, Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon writes that God has put eternity in the heart of man. There's a time and a season for everything, right? A time to dance, a time to mourn. And he goes through that whole series you know, of, of, of events. And then he comes to the end and he says, and God has put eternity into our hearts. So the ontological argument is there's an, we believe in the existence of God. This, this is there. Now, some would um, push back and say, well, I don't believe on this. But again, <laughs> the majority of mankind for the majority of, of his existence has believed in the existence of God. And there is an awareness. It's interesting, those who don't believe in God are very angry at him. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> just, just, just something to think about. It's like, how can you be so angry at this guy that you don't even know? Well, if he did exist, Okay. I think you believe he exists, and you're trying to dismiss him from your life. The last argument is a moral argument for the existence of God. Pretty straightforward, very accessible for us. And that is, and the argument states that because man understands right and wrong, there must be a moral lawgiver. How do you know that's right? How do you know that's wrong? Now, in our day, as prophesied, Good is being called evil, and evil is being called good. But even kind of in an um, inside-out way, there is this understanding, at least an argument, for what is right and for what is wrong. Why? Why? Why is there an argument for what is right and for what is wrong? 
Because we believe this to be the case. Romans 2, 14 through 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law of God, they don't have the written law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing accusing or else excusing them, based upon this idea of morality. So these are the, the four arguments for the existence of God. I'm not going to say this is the only way to argue it, um, but these are four classical ways in which you can um, think about, how do I know there is a God? And so we, those are the four. We next move into the idea of the fatherhood of God. So when we think about God, we often, we're taught to pray to our Father, which art in heaven. And the, this idea is, is meaningful. It, is, it, is, it speaks of intimacy. It speaks of friendship. Jesus made a reference to the Father over 200 times in his ministry. Can you believe that? That's a lot. I was kind of just, I, I wrote this down a long time ago and I read it again. I'm like, wow, 200 times. And this makes it one of the most talked about subjects in his ministry. It's important. Scripture highlights the fatherhood of God in a specific relationship with Israel, the church, and even the Lord's relationship with the Father. Israel is recognized as the children of God, but it's not a fully developed idea. Deuteronomy 131 says, In the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, and all the way that you went until you came to this place. So it, it talks about God being the father and Israel being carried as a son, but it's not a very well-developed idea. But nonetheless, you see that fatherhood picture and how God wants us to relate to him. And the New Testament, again, mentioned many times by the Lord himself. Um, he is a creator, but he is also the father. Um, and there are many places you could turn, again, over 200 times. Believers are taught in the New Testament to pray to their father in Matthew 6.6, 6, to wait for the promise of the father in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, which was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, raised to de- from the dead by the father, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, and should cry out to God as their, what? Abba, Father. And that's Romans 8.15. And I, I would say that it's that Romans 8.15 where that, that idea just it takes on a depth of meaning and significance supported by all the rest of, of how intimate that relationship is. Um, Abba. It, it's the idea of saying daddy um, in the Aramaic language. And that we can call out to him in this, this way. The, the third way in which the fatherhood of God is manifested is um, the relationship between Christ and how he spoke of the Father. Um, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we see this fatherhood of God, which speaks of... Uh, I'm just going to say, maybe it's not the the most precise way to say it, but the accessibility that we have to the Lord. Because we can understand the relationship of Father. Even if you've had a bad relationship with your earthly father, you long for wishing that you had a good one. You can still understand the concept of fatherhood. And this is how the Lord wants us to think of him. Not completely and not only, 
but it is an important way in which we approach the Lord, our Father, which art in heaven. Next, we'll dive into some of the attributes of God. Now, when you go and you study on the attributes of God, um, you're going to find that um, some will categorize them, some will not categorize them. Um, some will categorize them into these are the attributes that exist only um, in God, um, and like the immutability of God, He changes not. Um, we don't have that attribute, we change. Um, other, and then there's a category of those things where um, um, they're shared. He has a full, perfect um, attribute, but um, we can be merciful as God is merciful, but we can't be immutable. So this is often the way that they're, they're going to be categorized. I just want you to know that that's there. I'm not going to take the time to do that. Um, and theologians argue about the validity of, of dividing it in this way. So I'm just going to go through them as a list um, and the first one um, is the transcendence of God, um, often called the immensity of God. It's a declaration of the greatness of God, that he is vast, that he is, um, well, immense. Uh, Wayne Grudem says, by this we mean that God is separate from and independent, and independent of nature and humanity. God is not simply attached to or involved in his creation. He is also superior to it in several significant ways. So the problem I think we often see in our day today is that we want to make God like ourselves, And we fail to see the transcendence of God. And when man loses the sight of the awe-inspiring transcendent nature of God, then we quickly become wise in our own opinions, our own ways, and our own methods, and we're quick to jettison the revelation of God because we don't see him as transcendent. We bring him down to our own level. A.W. Tozer, from that book that I referenced earlier, The Knowledge of the Holy, he writes, When men no longer fear God, they transgress his laws without hesitation. The fear of consequences is not deterrent uh, a deterrent when the fear of God is gone. I wonder if this is not maybe one of the greatest uh, losses that man in our generation has of God, is that he's transcendent. I think that we're experiencing this in, in the church. Big C, uh, the Lord is not transcendent, so I can, I can take what he has said in the word of God, and I can begin to negotiate, and I can begin to change it. But he is transcendent. And we should tremble and we should fear in front of him. One of the attributes I'm not, I really didn't have on my list, but is also that he's eminent, which means he's among us. Not eminent as like he's ready to happen, but that he's present among us. So he's transcendent. But he's, and um, Thomas Jefferson would have had no problem with the transcendency of God. He would have had a problem with what? The, the fatherhood of God. He would have had a problem with the eminency of God, that he is among his people. But although he's among us, it, it should not take away from his greatness. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Well, there's a great idea of the transcendence of God. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What a great contrast between this transcendent God who's willing to come and minister to us. Praise the Lord for his willingness to toil with mankind and put up with us 
Who was God that he should have to come to us? And yet he does because he loves us. The sovereignty of God. And this is explained by J.R.I. Packard in the following way. God's dominion being total. He wills as he chooses and carries out all that he wills. And none can stay his hand or thwart his plans. Although God is sovereign and is able to do all that he wants and nobody can stop him, he has revealed himself to finite man. That is, to to man who is limited. So that we might wonder and worship that his attributes would cause us to lift our hands. But sadly, they often become, that is, the attributes of God, like the sovereignty of God, as a, a theological debate and the wrangling that happens among the believers of the Lord. Because after all, man has a free will, but God is absolutely sovereign. How in the world can we possibly reconcile these two truths? I'll tell you what I was told. Troy, when you get in a boat and you want, and it's, it's a, a, there's no motor, if you want to move in that boat, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to, to use oars. He goes, he goes, if you only use one oar on one side of the boat, what are you going to do? I'm going to go in circles. He says, then use both oars. And that's what I would say, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Uh, Tozer, again, I just can't stop from quoting him. Let me read to you what he says about this um, often disputed topic of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. I love this. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. I love that. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. That is gold right there. So we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the free will of man. The sovereignty of God should comfort us, knowing that our Creator and our Father is looking out over us and that He is going to accomplish His perfect will. Next, we come to the omnipotence of God. That is, God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with His own nature. God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his own nature, which answers the argument, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? It's inconsistent in his nature to do something that he can't do. Why would he do that? So God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his own nature. And I think this is maybe an attribute that we find a little bit easier to um, comprehend and understand versus maybe the transcendence or the immutability of God. These are some deep thinking points. But the omnipotence of God, all-powerful, we can understand that. And so many songs are written about the omnipotence of the Lord and His power. Knowing that God is omnipotent brings great comfort and peace to the person who has yielded themselves to that rule. If you've not yielded yourself to the rule of the transcendent, omnipotent God, then you have reason to be fearful. But for those of us who have come, we also know him as not just transcendent, omnipotent, but we also know him as who? Our Father. And so it all begins to beautifully fit together. The omnipotence of the Lord. The omnipotence of the Lord means 
that it's not harder for God to do one thing versus the other. If you were to ask the question, was it harder for God to part the Red Sea or to help that brother or sister who was frantically looking for their keys that their toddler put in some mysterious place in their house as they were trying to rush out the door to make it on time for that much-coveted job interview? What's, What's harder for God? Is it harder for Him to give direction where the keys are or to part the Red Sea? He's all-powerful. You don't drain the power of God. It is not more difficult for him to part the Red Sea than it is to help you find your keys. So therefore, when we pray, do we have to raise our voice when it's even the more difficult? It's the same for the Lord. How wonderful to have access through faith and prayer to an all-powerful God who is our Father. The immutability of God. That is, God never changes. You might want to look up Malachi 3.6. Malachi 3.6. And so we believe that he does not change. But there is a, a theology, a bad theology, a heretical theology, that says God is in the process of knowing more and becoming better. It's called the process, process theology. Um, and that is simply saying that God is changing. No, he's not. We believe that God is immutable. He changes not. Let me read to you um, in a website that maybe you would want to look up on some of this. It's, it's called carm.org. And um, uh, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, I think, was what CARM stands for. But it's a great website. Gotquestions.org is another great website. Um, I think these are you know, thoughtful, meaningful, and very accessible and free, which is not bad either. Um, but here's the definition that Matt Slick, uh, writing for CARM, gives us about process theology. Process theology is a philosophical and theological position that God is changing as is the universe. Therefore, our knowledge of God must be progressing as we learn more about him, and it can never rest in any absolutes, which is why process theologians deny the absolutes of God's immutability and truth. Furthermore, this would mean that absolute knowledge of God would not be achievable. And a self-revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ in the Bible would also not be possible. So process theology is just a hot mess that takes you away from the Christian faith. That's what it does. We believe he is immutable. And, um, you know, we change. But I'm glad that God doesn't change his mind. I'm glad that God's not figuring something else out. I'm glad that he already knows it all. And so he is not in this process of changing whatsoever. Um, now, we talked about a progressive revelation that comes. God gave us a kernel of truth in, in Genesis about re- redemption. And it, he added what he already knew more and more as we go through Scripture. So by the time you get to the New Testament, we know more than, that, than what was first said, is that you know, uh, there's going to be a, the seed of the woman is going to come and destroy the head of the serpent. We know a lot more because of the revelation that came, that he's going to uh, you know, be pierced. We know that he's going to be Isaiah 53, that he's going to have the sins of the world placed on him. So much more information comes. That's different than process 
theology, okay? Process theology is talking about the nature of the Lord. Uh, progressive revelation is talking about what God chose to reveal at any given time, not that he changed it or altered it. So to change is very human, and it can even be beneficial, right? I'm sure you can look back on your life and say, I'm glad I've changed. I'm glad he's changed. I'm glad she changed. I'm glad they changed. There can be some benefit, but not the immutable one. He does not change. And so we can trust in the promises of Scripture. He is also self-existent. God is a self-existing being. That means he exists because of himself and no other. That is not said of you. That cannot be said of me or any part of creation. All beings find their existence in another, but God is not dependent upon anyone other than himself. Exodus 3.14, where the covenant name of God is given, we read this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children, I am has sent me to you. I am the all-existing one. I'm not, it's not that I, I was or I will be. Both of those are problematic, isn't it? If you say, hey God, well, I will be. Hmm, okay, that's kind of a problem. I guess I shouldn't pray to you yet. You know, hey, hey God, I was. Oh, too late. That's a problem. But God says, I am. And so you can come to him and he is present in your circumstances. Jesus affirmed this attribute of God when he said, the Father has life in himself. So he has granted the Son to have life in himself. This is, we cannot say that about ourselves, can we? How about the mercy of God? Now these are some of those attributes that we can find we're commanded to be merciful. We're never commanded to be immutable or omnipotent or omniscient. But we are told to be merciful. And this is, uh, in the New King James, this word is used 359 times. It's a, it's a word that's often used. God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. That's what mercy is. God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. And I might add, even if it is self-inflicted. Praise the Lord. Those who are familiar with Scripture understand that mercy is an often mentioned theme. And the encouraging word, an encouraging word about mercy of, of God, that is, is that it's not a posture that he takes for a while, he works himself up to, and then later decides to say, mm, I don't think I'm going to be as compassionate as I used to be. That describes who? Us. So mercy is something that, and hear this, mercy is something we are to do, but mercy is who God is is. I don't know if God wants to be merciful anymore. Are you saying he's no longer going to be God? And so the enemy comes in, oh, he's not going to be merciful to you. Whoa, time out. He is merciful. Uh, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. There's not a ton of encouraging verses in Lamentations, right? That's why it's called Lamentations. But listen to this. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, Great is your faithfulness. So even if you think you've maxed out the mercy that God has, which you haven't, there's a fresh dose every single morning. He's merciful. He's love. 1 John 4.8 talks about this, right? Um, God is love. Uh, 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. God loves us. And it's manifested most clearly 
in the redemption and the, in, and the you know brought through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That he, God's Son came to this earth to redeem us tells us that He is a God of love. Man may desire the best for those he loves, yet his finitude or his limited abilities is going to keep him from being able to bring about that favor. Every parent knows that. Every parent is met with their limitations, even though they may have tremendous love. You cannot always love to the degree that you would maybe desire to manifest that love. But not for the Lord. He's perfect and complete in this love. So he never will come up short. Never. Because that is who he is. God is love. We seek to show love. We're a new creation made in his image. But God is able to. Again, Tozer says his love disposes him to desire our everlasting welfare. And his sovereignty enables him to secure it. So you know, the great thing about the study of the attributes of God is you get one and then you get another and you get another and it's like suddenly this beautiful mosaic of who our God is is painted and we end up writing worship songs and we end up singing and giving the Lord glory. So these are uh, some of the attributes. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is some that I think should cause us all to just say our God is an awesome God. Some of the names of God, um, and this is a fun study. I'm, I'm not going to even come anywhere close to exhausting the list, but I just want to give you some of the most significant names for the name of the Lord. Um, and this is a way in which God describes himself, okay? Um, this is not the invention of man. This is, God says, this is how you can know me. And um, one of the words that is an often repeated word, 2,600 times in the Old Testament, we find the word Elohim. And that is a plural form of the Hebrew word uh, that um, speaks of God. And a definition would be uh, the strong one, the mighty leader, the supreme deity. Here's the interesting thing, though. And Charles Ryrie um, notes this. He says, Elohim, a plural form, is peculiar to the Old Testament and appears in no other Semitic language. Only in the Hebrew Bible, and in, in the Hebrew language, is the plural form found in, um, in any other writings. And because our God is um, manifested himself in three distinct persons. Adonai is used uh, 360 times in the Old Testament, and it's usually translated capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Um, and this is referring to one who is sovereign in his rule and has absolute authority. So that's the idea of um, what would be translated Lord in our Bibles, but the Hebrew word Adonai. Then there's the word Yahweh, which we've already made reference to. And this is the most commonly used name for God in the Old Testament. 6,823 times in the Old Testament. So by a long shot. This is seen in your Bible as what? Capital L, capital O, capital, so cap lock, O-R-D. All right? This is the redemptive covenant-keeping name of God. Um, and... Again, a quote, the full meaning of the word is not known, uh, is not fully known, 
But Ryrie says the principal idea being that God was present with the people of Israel. So again, not I will be, not I was, but I am. So just a little bit on the names of God. There's many, many more you could go through and study. But uh, let, let's, let's move on here and let's talk about the Trinity. And this is one of the great mysteries of Christian theology. The Trinity, the Holy Trinity. Now here's what I want to say about the Holy Trinity. Sometimes I think there's this idea of just like, oh, forget it, nobody can understand this thing. Well, I want to push back on that a little bit and say, while it is a mystery, and while it is difficult to take the truths that are revealed and individually are completely accessible, it's, the, it's the taking those two truths about God and trying to put them together where the mystery enters. So there's two aspects of, of the Holy Trinity, and these are not mysterious to us. Um, so what are we talking about when we say the Trinity? What's the definition for it? And I think we'll have this up on the screen. It says that in one divine essence or nature, there are three persons distinguished from each other by certain characteristics and, second part, and indivisibly participating in that one nature. So they are distinct persons. They're distinguished from each other. But there is one nature. So the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. But they are distinct persons. But we don't have three gods. And this is it's like, well, doesn't one plus one equal two. It's kind of where our mind wants to go. So if you have three, then you must have three gods. But that's not the way we are taught in Scripture. So let's break it down into that first piece that God is one in regards to his essence. And let me just give you a Webster definition for the word essence. It's the formal existence or that which makes anything to be what it is. The peculiar nature of a thing, the very substance. So that which makes anything to be what it is. So when we're talking about the essence of God, we're talking about his nature or his substance. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all share the same essence, substance, which is, of course, divine. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a lot to unpack there, but for the point and for the sake of time, let's just emphasize that last phrase. Uh, you see um, up there that we have all capitals, so this is the name Yahweh, um, and He is our God, and He, the Lord, is one. He is one. So we're talking about that God is one in regard to His essence. The teaching of oneness of essence emphasizes the same, that the same attributes are equal among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So, if you want to do a study on the Trinity, what you can do is begin to look at all the places where you find the nature of God. Make three columns, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And as you begin to go through, and you're going to find out that they share the same attributes. 
And so we can say they have the same essence. Now, there's an ancient uh, first century, man, maybe not first century, Arius, whatever, I'm going to say third century, um, uh, heresy, uh, in, Arian um, was his last name, it's the Arian heresy, and it pushed back on, on this idea. Um, Arius taught that Jesus shared a similar nature to God, but rejected that Jesus was of the same nature. So he says, well, he has a similar essence, but it's not the same essence. And although I, these words may not mean much to you, I just... I think it's interesting to hear the words pronounced, if I can pronounce them correctly, um, of, 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 of how the argument sounded back in the day. So Arius taught that Jesus shared a similar nature, or that is a homoousios, but rejected that Jesus was of the same nature, a homoousios. And so this was the great debate, and there was a, a, a huge difference it's a difference between whether you were saying that Jesus was divine or not divine. And this heresy has been repeated over and over among the cults. Again, theologian Wayne Grudem says of Arius, Arius was happy to say that Christ was a supernatural, heavenly being, and that he was created by God before the creation of the rest of the universe, and even that he was similar to God in his nature. But he wouldn't say that he was the same. So we make a big deal over this point. Because it's, it's part of the Holy Trinity. Is that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share the same essence. The same nature. So any attempt to rightly understand the teaching of the Bible on the nature of God. Begins with clinging to this first element of the Trinity. And that he is of the same nature. It's indispensable. That is how he has revealed himself. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Uh, Behold, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Another one, James two nineteen. You believe there is one God. You do well. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So this is a, you can find so many verses about the, the oneness of God. But now let's talk about this second element of the Trinity, and that God is three in respect to persons. And if you're like, how much longer can he go on like this? I'm almost done, actually. I realize, listen, let me just pause here. So this is, this is hard for me to teach, not because I, um, I mean, I can understand it. Um, I don't understand it all. I love digging into it. I like finding the parts I don't quite understand and, and just digging in a little deeper and getting growing in my understanding. Um, so I love all of that. I love talking about it. Um, but, you know, and I think it, it's beneficial. I think it's helpful for us to do this. Um, but from that pastoral side, I, man, I long to be in the book of the Bible and to um, talk about things that are dealing with your everyday life. This one's a little bit easier to talk about because we're talking about the nature of God and those attributes. Um, but I think it's important for us to understand the faith that we've been given and that we will cling to it and we'll understand it. And, um, uh, you know, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity, it is, it's, 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 it's a difficult one. But I would imagine to say, if you could just take what I said in the beginning, that God is one, nobody has blown a gasket on that. Nobody's blown a gasket on that God is one. And if we take just the second part that I'm about to enter into, 
is that God is three um, in respect to persons. Again, nobody's going to blow a gasket. Gasket. I mean, we're gonna, you're going to be fine with it. So, um, so I realize this is a different way of um, teaching than what we normally do. I hope you'll hang in. I hope you will allow these truths to just be laid down. If you've never heard this stuff before and you walk out getting familiar with a little bit, then success. Okay? Um, and these are out there for you to go back and to listen to again and again. I'll put my notes out there that allow you to contemplate this a little longer. But let's press on. That God is three in respect to persons. By persons, we mean the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this is the, the next major element in building the proper understanding of what the doctrine of the Trinity is. When we speak of persons, we're talking and, and understand this to mean each person has an individual essence distinct from another person. But when we talk about the Trinity, is that they share the same essence but they are also distinct in their persons. Matthew 3.16 When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And of course, we go on to find that, saying, this is my beloved Son, right? The Father speaks. So in one single event, you see the Father distinct, distinct speaking from the Spirit who is descending upon Jesus, who is distinct from Jesus, who is being baptized. All three of them are showing up doing distinctive things at the same moment. So this is why we say, yes, we believe that there is one God, and we will argue, we're monotheists, we'll argue that you know, vigorously. But we also will argue for this idea that God is three in respect to persons. And here's an example of where you see it. The father speaking to those that are gathered about his son and the spirit descending. And they have distinct relationships. Um, it's apparent there's a certain order within the Godhead. And there are different functions are noted. Um, so let me read to you from one old theologian by the name of uh, Louis Burkhoff. He says, In personal subsistence, the Father is first, the Son second, and the Holy Spirit third. We often will say the first person, the second person, and the third person of the Holy Trinity, right? It need hardly be stated that this order does not pertain to any priority of time or of essential dignity, but only to the logical order of derivation. So we say this. First person of the Godhead, second person of the Godhead, third person. But don't read too much into that. So we're not saying that there is a hierarchy. There is a different function. And the last piece I want us to talk about on the Holy Trinity as we wrap it up is that the three persons are equal in authority. And so we see a different function. We see a different order. The Son is begotten. The Spirit, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, and so we see that there's distinctions, uh, but we must understand that these are not saying one is greater than the other. It speaks to their function, not to the benefit or the value or the greatness of one person over the other. So they are equal in authority. 
Although you see Jesus saying, I always do the things that the Father tells me to do. Oh, he's less than. No, he's not. So there is an order. The order does not conclude then that one is greater than the other. It's how they, in their, the, the wisdom of the Godhead, they have chosen to function and manifest and make themselves known to us here on earth. So this is a holy trinity. Yes, there are some pieces that are difficult to reconcile together. But if you can understand this, there is one God who has manifested himself in three persons. Each one of those is a completely accessible truth in and of itself. Both of them are clearly taught in Scripture, and I gave you some verses for that. And so we think, yeah, but what about this? Okay, great is the mystery of godliness. And that is a part where we just say, Lord, I don't completely understand your nature. But is that really that big of a deal? Because if I was to come to you and I was to say, can you explain who you are to me? Would any of you find difficulty? Sure you would. Because this is what you have often said to yourself. What is wrong with you? Which is to say that even you of yourself don't know what's the problem. You can't figure yourself out. You, it's like, well, I, yeah, I, well, yeah, I am kind of like that. Well, I'm kind of like this. Well, who are you? I don't know. I'm figuring myself out as I go. And if that is the case, that we have a limited understanding and knowledge of even ourself, should it be a big surprise that the nature and the inner workings of the Godhead are beyond our comprehension? So rather than being a negative, why don't we just call it for what it is? I'm glad my God is bigger than me. I have no problem with that. Well, you can't even understand the Trinity. I mean, you got somebody knocking on your door, somebody arguing about that. I'm saying, well, I can understand the elements of it, but you can't reconcile that. It doesn't make sense. And I'm like, explain yourself to me. What is your essence? There's no answer coming forth, I can promise you. What's your nature? We know more about the nature of God in some ways than we even do about ourselves. So that this is a topic that goes beyond our... Um, intellectual abilities to fully comprehend and reconcile together, I'm all right with it. There's a lot of things like that in Scripture. And so I can think of no better expenditure of time than to seek to know God. He is knowable. You should know Him. And we should be on a lifelong journey to remind ourselves and refresh ourselves in those attributes of God and in His nature and in His ways because it will only lead to one thing. We will fear the Lord and we will worship the Lord. And while, yes, the transcendence of God, the immutability of God, the omnipotence of God, and the omniscience of God are all intimidating, intimidating attributes because He's a God of love, mercy, and He's also my Father, I can now embrace my arms around all of that and say, thank you, Lord, because now... I realize that God is for me. And in his you know, um, uh, immenseness is not something to be feared. It is something to be worshipped and to find comfort in. How blessed we are to have a maker who desires that his creation be known uh, by him. Or that we would know him uh, as creation. He wants to reveal himself to us. So... A lot of information, I realize that. Um, the goal is, again, I could easily have broken these down and talked a whole lot more on any one of these topics. 
But I guess what I'm trying to do is get through 10 weeks, which seems long enough to me. And then in these 10, in each one week, to have a, a, a one thought on one topic, one aspect of, of theology, so that we can just hear it all at once. Because we could break it up over three or four weeks, and, and there's great value in that. But I think there's also great value in having a summary idea and hearing all of this at once. So um, my encouragement to you is go get that free download of Knowledge of the Holy as he really digs into the attributes of God. And um, I'd love to hear some feedback on it. Good luck if you can read a half a chapter and not stop and get down on your knees and worship. That's, that's kind of the way this book goes. How many of you have ever read anything from Tozer? Have you, okay, so it's just like everything else, but maybe even a little bit more. So let's go ahead and close in prayer, and um, then we're going we're gonna to end the evening. Father, we are so grateful that you, a loving God, an all-powerful God, a God that is transcendent, that you would choose to come and speak to people like us. <laughs> that you would come, Lord, and deal with the difficulty and the sin and the mess that we've made so that your creation might know you. Lord, we stand back and we say thank you. And we are humbled, Lord, by, by your love for us your desire that we would know you, that it would, you would care, that you are even jealous of our knowledge over you, that it would be for you and for no other. So, Lord, we thank you for this. I pray that you would just root us and ground us in your word. Lord, as we, we study these things, I, I pray that you would bring a health and a, a depth to this body of believers and anybody that hears this that would go far beyond anything we could ever imagine from just a single study, that your word would not return void, but it would really establish us um, and who our God is and what you do. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.